Welcome to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church in Harvest, Alabama. We invite you into our sanctuary as we dive into God's Word with our pastor, Dr. Al Perringer. You know, after I was praying and thinking and, okay, you know, I did the first 11 chapters of Genesis. I have a foundation now for the rest of Scripture. Where, where to go from there? And I thought that, well, you know, I can't put it off forever. You know, we, we got to try and figure out what Daniel means. And it, it, Daniel is an interesting book, to say the least, but it also is one of the more perplexing books within um, the Bible. I mean, it's a neat book because it has so many of the well-known stories that, you know, we grew up in. I mean, ever since we were children, you know, we heard the story about the three men who were in the, thrown into the furnace and they lived. We heard the story about Daniel and, and the lion's den. And, and so it, it has some wonderful, uh, uplifting stories in it, but at the same time, it has some of the most seemingly confusing visions and dreams in all of Scripture. But now Daniel is actually one of, I mean, all Scripture is important, obviously, every bit of it, but I mean, it is a very important book. It actually gives us some of the clearest pictures of Christ in the Old Testament. It tells us about God's kingdom. And it, it really is an interesting bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament. Now, obviously, it's considered one of the more important books when it comes to eschatology. Eschatology is the theology of last things. Um, you know, that broadly covers a lot of things, heaven, hell, but obviously end, end times, Christ's uh, return, Christ's return. And it is, has a lot of symbolism in it. And a lot of that symbolism is borrowed by the Apostle John for use in the book of Revelation. And so, if we want a, be, a clearer understanding of Revelation, you need to have a clearer understanding of Daniel. Now, you know, we, we know Revelation talks about some end times things. And Daniel does to the point, to a point, but you might be surprised that Daniel doesn't talk about end times as much as might we think or, you know, might be attributed to him. In fact, most of the visions and dreams have more to do with Israel and their immediate political situation from the time of Daniel leading up to the first coming uh, of Christ. And so Daniel, you know, after I, I, I was reading, I, you know, I, I was, my mic is going in and out. Well, I don't know. My green light is on. I don't know. You know, it, maybe I'll blame it on Chad. 
just because. I'll blame it on Chad because he went to the Brewer house yesterday. And nothing good ever happens when someone goes to the Brewer house. Thankfully, I have a big enough mouth that if my mic goes out, you'll still be able to hear me, hopefully. So, um, but just do what I do. Just blame everything on Chad and, you know, you move on from there. Oh, it just, just blame it on Chad. Honey, uh, our car broke down. Blame it on Chad. You know, just do it all on Chad. Exactly. Chad is not here to defend himself. And so... That's why I say blame it on Chad. I'm not going to blame it on myself, am I? No, I'd never do that. But anyway, you know, I got to reading, just delving into a whole lot of introductory things on Daniel. <clears throat> because that's what I want to do tonight. I just want to spend time introducing the book of Daniel. But then, you know, I, I was reading and I'm like, oh boy, what did I get myself into? But there's a lot there, and there's a lot of good stuff in Daniel. And so it is an important book uh, to dive into. And we have to be careful to take Daniel and the passages in Daniel within their context. You will hear me repeat over and over on Sunday morning, Wednesday nights, take Scripture within its context. Don't try and make Scripture say something that it never was meant to say. It has a historical context. It has a literary context, and we have to take it within that. Don't pull it out of its historical and literary context. We can't, and what's so hard with a book like Daniel is we want to grab it and make it fit what we already believe about the end times. You know what I'm saying? And so, you know, we might try and take Daniel to try and fit within current events. Oh, this current event is being spoken of in Daniel chapter 10 or whatever. As one author warned, he said, Yet by understanding Daniel's visions as a message written directly for us, we fail to do justice to the meaning throughout history. For surely they meant something to their original audience and continue to speak to God's people today. So what we have to do is we have to search what did the Holy Spirit inspire Daniel to write to the original audience? What did it mean to the original audience because it will not ever mean anything other than what God through Daniel was trying to convey to the Jews in Daniel's day. Not that they understood everything uh, that was going on, but we have to take it within that context. What was it saying within its, within its original setting? And then from there, okay, what is the application for today? Of course, that's the way you should approach all of Scripture. What did it mean within its context? What did it mean? What's its historical context? What's its, its literary context? What did it mean to the original audience? Okay, that's what it means. How does it apply today? 
When we look at Daniel, we're going to learn lessons about living faithfully. We're going to learn lessons about God working in the midst of trying times. But yes, there's also going to be some implications for future times. Now, I, I must forewarn you, um, as we reach those portions of Daniel, I will, I will give the varied views of Bible scholars for certain aspects of, of the book. And I'm going to challenge you with what you think you might think about Daniel. But I'm going to challenge you, I mean, to think deeply about what Daniel is saying. I will give you the different views of, of what's out there. But then, you know, you're going to have to come to your own conclusion for yourself on some things. Some things that aren't confusing. You know, there, there, there's things that are very clear, and so those are easy. But there's some things, you know, that, that you know, it might just kind of make you think, hmm, I wonder what, what, what that, that is. And so, I, and then I'm going to challenge you to, okay, this is what Daniel says. This is the picture that Daniel gives. What's its implication for the book of Revelation? Since the book of Revelation takes from Daniel so much, uses so much the imagery of Daniel. And, and so sometimes I, I'm going to challenge your view of Revelation. Sometimes, and Trish will tell, tell you this about me, sometimes I, I just like to poke the bear a little bit. Sometimes I, I just like to... <laughs> I just like to do something to force you to think, to force you to... Okay, if you're going to hold this view of Scripture, be able to defend it. And, and, and so... I'll just to, just for fun, this will be your thinking exercise for this week. Kind of get your wheels turning. Because this is what we're going to have to do with, with the book of Daniel. So, for example, in the book of Revelation, it talks about two beasts, right? There's the first beast, and then there's this beast that comes out of the water. Now, generally, what have you heard about those two beasts. Does anybody want to say what, what generally is usually put out there, what the one beast is and what the other beast is? Everyone's like, no, because you're going to try and trick me. No, I'm not going to try and trick you, per se. But I am going to poke the bear a little bit. So normally, I mean, this is what I, I have, how I have heard it put. The first beast is the Antichrist. And the second beast that comes up out of the water is like the prophet or the mouthpiece of the Antichrist. Has anybody else heard that before? Okay. The images of these beasts, they hearken back to Daniel. In the book of Daniel, we are going to run into a vision we're actually going to run into a couple of visions that use beasts. There'll be a vision that has these four beasts coming out of the water. There's going to be another vision with, you know, uh, a couple of, uh, of beasts. 
But when you look at Daniel's vision of the beasts, they are, it's abundantly clear that it's referring to nations. It's referring to empires. The empire that is and the empires that are going to come. Well, guess what? If the beasts in Daniel represent empires and nations, what do the beasts in Revelation represent? They wouldn't represent individuals. They would represent nations and empires. Which ones? Well, I don't know. You're going to have to wait for a study on Revelation to answer that question. You figure that one out for yourself. So, there's me. This is wheels turning. I, you know, we say, we have always heard this, and we've always heard that. So we come to Daniel and the book of Revelation with a whole lot of presuppositions, which means the filters. It's the way that we filter this information. We, we come to Daniel, we come to Revelation, and we already have this filter in. Some of you might be pre-mill, pre-mill pre-trib, pre-tribulation, rapture, pre-mill, you know, stuff, things like that. View of end times, Hal Lindsey, Tim LaHaye, and, and things like that. Some of you might be A-mail. Some of you might be post-mail. Some of you might not have any idea what I'm talking about, and that's okay. But you, you, you have these certain presuppositions that you come into. We, we need to um, just jettison those presuppositions and, and allow the Scriptures to speak for themselves within their context. So that's what I'm hoping to do with this uh, study on Daniel. And so, yeah, we're, we're going to look at the passages, we're going to look at them at different angles, and uh, just see where the Lord leads from there. Now tonight, I just want to begin with just an introduction to the book of Daniel t- to set the scene. Um, it won't be v- very long, we don't have a, a lot of time left. But I think that having this background will be helpful when we dive into uh, the book of, of Daniel. Having these things in the back of our minds, you know, it's going to help us with Figuring out the original intended meaning, and then how that applies to our lives today. So first, I want to talk about what kind of book Daniel is, because it's, it's unique. It's very unique. Now, now, we know the Bible is one book that's made up of several different books. And within this book, and these several different books, are a whole lot of different types of literature because the Bible is a book, it is literature. And it uses literary devices and it contains different forms of literature. And so we have to look at these different forms of literature in the way that they were intended. Because within the Bible you have historical narrative, you have wisdom literature, you have biography, you have letters, and and all sorts of of different things. And and so in order to understand Daniel, we got to know what kind of literature it is, what form it is. Because you can't read one form of literature the way you might read a different form of literature. You wouldn't read the Gospels the same way that you would read the prophetic literature, Isaiah and the like. You wouldn't read the Proverbs the same way you would read a historical narrative. And and so literary context is, is very important. The problem is that Daniel and really, a lot of the other books in the Bible, too, Daniel just doesn't fit into one kind of box. It doesn't fit into one type of literature. 
And several books are like that. You know, so one book of the Bible might contain several genres. Uh, there's a fancy term for types of, of literature in there. I mean, even Revelation is like that because Revelation has epistles in it as well as uh, other parts. So what in the world is Daniel? Now, we know Daniel contains historical narrative. It tells us about incidents that happened to real people in real places within history. It tells us historical facts. It, it, it tells us these facts like kind of in a narrative form, meaning it's story-like, but it's telling you truth. It's telling you facts. And even some scholars give it a fancy title. These are court tales, which just means it, it's narratives about what's happening in a royal court. I mean, it makes sense. Daniel worked in the court of, of you know, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar. And, and, and so, you know, you might fit the first six chapters of Daniel within that category. But then you start getting into chapter 7 and all the way through chapter 12, the rest of the book, it's a whole lot different. Because there's like these visions and these dreams and these symbols. There's these beasts and all sorts of weird stuff going on. And, 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 and so what in the world is that? Well, that type of literature is called apocalyptic literature. Um, there's other books that have, in, in the Old Testament, that have little snippets of apocalyptic literature in them. Ezekiel, Zechariah, some say a little bit of Isaiah, and, and so on. But obviously, Daniel is the best representative of that type of, of literature. And the book of Revelation would be its counterpart in the New Testament. Um, in, in other Jewish literature that isn't in the Bible, they used apocalyptic uh, quite often. If you've ever heard of the book of First Enoch, I mean, I, th I mentioned that a few times in talking about Genesis. Um, but other books like that, they're, they're apocalyptic. Of course, you know, what in, the, what in the world is apocalyptic literature? Because when you hear the word apocalypse, I mean, the, the thing that comes to mind when you hear the word apocalypse is fire and brimstone and all sorts of catastrophes going on all over the place. But that isn't necessarily the case because the, the word apocalypse, literally, I mean, it just means revelation. Hence why we call it the book of Revelation, right? Some people call it the apocalypse. Some people call it the book of Revelation because that's, that's the word. It's God revealing something that was previously hidden from mankind, but now God decided he was going to reveal it. I mean, that doesn't sound very helpful since, in essence, all of Scripture is God revealing something about himself. Um, but, but this type of literature has some specific features. Uh, one person defines it like this. He said, apocalypse is a genre of revelatory literature that has a narrative framework in which a revelation is mediated by an otherworldly being, I mean, think like an angel or something, given to a human recipient. It discloses transcendent reality, which is both temporal, insofar as it you know, gives eschatological salvation things, and spatial. it's also spatial insofar that it involves another supernatural world. And so what it is, it's a type of literature that looks at the physical but looks beyond the physical. It also looks at the spiritual. It looks at what's going on behind the scenes. 
And it, off, it reveals, oftentimes, God will use an angel to, to give this. It, it reveals what God is about to do. Because in Daniel, we're going to see angels give the message that God wants to give. And if you read the book of Revelation, it, 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 it begins by saying that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ that he gave to an angel to give to John to give to the seven churches in Asia. You know, it just kind of went down the line. So, but, but Christ, he does appear himself, but he gave the message to an angel to give to John, to give to the churches, and so on, and so forth. And when we hear the word apocalypse, we often think that it deals with end times. In some senses it does, in many senses it does not. It often is about earthly empires. It's often about judgment of these earthly empires. It's about God's defeat of the enemy of his people. It reveals to us heavenly kingdom and how to live in light of that kingdom, uh, even when you know, you're surrounded by tyranny. Um, and, and you'll notice that the apocalyptic literature is given to people who are going through some sort of persecution or trial. The book of Daniel is given to the Jews who are in exile. The book of Revelation is given to the church that is being persecuted. And so instead of looking at a, this kind of literature, just like doom and gloom, it's nothing but doom and gloom. Actually, what it is, it's supposed to be about hope. It's supposed to be giving encouragement to God's people that guess what? These earthly empires that are causing you so much problems, these earthly governments that are a pain in your neck, they aren't forever. But God's kingdom is forever. Now, Daniel is often considered a prophet. Now, his writing isn't like the other prophets' writings, because the other prophets, you know, Isaiah... Jeremiah, Hosea, you know, all these other prophets, they're proclaiming God's word of judgment against God's own people because of their disobedience, trying to get them to repent. Look, repent. If you don't repent, God's wrath is going to come upon you. But Daniel doesn't have that kind of message because God's people are already suffering. And, you know, the word given through Daniel is supposed to be an encouragement to them and kind of a glimpse into God's plan for them. And so Daniel isn't necessarily a prophet like the others are a prophet. Even though our Bible, okay, so the order of our Bible follows the Greek Bible, the Septuagint, the, the order of things. So our Bible puts Daniel at the end, like he's the end of the major prophets, right? But in the Hebrew Bible, he's put with the writings. He isn't put with the prophets. And the writings are like Esther and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and things like that. So, but honestly, he's unique, or the book is unique amongst all the writings. Now, to, to understand what he's writing about, we kind of need to understand the historical context. And, and, and so let me just go through that very quick. Israel, hundreds of years earlier, had been split into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, ten of ten tribes, and then the southern kingdom of Judah, and then Benjamin was kind of just 
brought in with them. Now, both, both of those nations really made God mad. I mean, they were disobedient. And so foreign nations were constantly harassing them. But the northern kingdom sure went off the reservation very quickly and very bad. And, and so in 722 BC, they were taken into captivity and kind of deported by the Assyrians. Well, you would think that the southern kingdom of Judah, they see their northern sister, so to speak, uh, get judged by God like that. You would think that they would think, hey, let's get our act together. No, not really. And so they, they, they fell into the same forms of disobedience that the northern kingdom of Israel did. And Assyria, you know, bothered Judah, but then Assyria was defeated by Babylon. The Babylonian prince who would become king, Nebuchadnezzar, went down to Egypt to make sure Egypt stayed down south. It wouldn't try and come up and, and, and get into their territory. But what's kind of sort of between Egypt and Babylon? Well, Israel, Judah. And so Nebuchadnezzar made Judah a vassal state, and he started deporting the people. And in the first part of kind of stealing the people away from Judah, he would take the young people who had the most promise, the smartest, the brightest, those who were part of the National Honor Society or something along those lines. He would take them to bring them to Babylon, to train them so that they could work within the government. They could work within Nebuchadnezzar's government. So in 605 BC, Nebuchadnezzar took a group of young people from Judah, and that included Daniel and his three friends, the first wave of the captivity. Of captivity. Well, there, Judah is under Babylon's thumb. You would think that they would learn their lessons. They still didn't. Judah continued to rebel against God and rebelled against Babylon. And finally, Nebuchadnezzar had enough and he destroyed Jerusalem, burned it down in 586 B.C. and brought most of the people uh, back uh, into captivity. I mean, they spread, it out, spread them out throughout the empire. But you know what? No empire lives forever. After several decades, Babylon became more wicked. And because of their wickedness, they became more weak. And eventually, the combined empire of the Medes and Persians took, took on Babylon and, and, and uh, defeated Babylon. And they became the new uh, empire. They easily def defeated Babylon and took over their territory, including Israel and Judah. But they, Babylon and, and the Medes and Persians, they governed differently. Babylon would take people and bring them to the central part of government to work for the government. Well, the Medes and the Persians wanted to send the people back to their land. And so the Medes and the Persians sent the Jews back to Judah to rebuild Jerusalem. They let them rebuild the temple. But Daniel didn't go, go back. He stayed. And he actually worked in the government for the Medes and Persians as well. So think about this, Daniel was, was about 15 years old in 605 B.C., taken into captivity, trained to work in the government. And in, as we'll read in Daniel, he took on some of the highest positions uh, in, in, in government. And he, he, he served all the kings of Babylon all along until they were defeated. 
But then he started serving the kings of the Medes and, and the Persians. The last thing recorded in, in the book of Daniel took place around 535 B.C. So Daniel's about 85 years old at this time, and so he may have, he may have lived into his 90s. And, and so this is Daniel. This is Daniel's life. Stolen away as a teenager, trained to work in the government, you know, part of the captivity. He was faithful to God, but he was chosen by God to receive messages and to convey them to the people during their trials. Now, he wasn't the only one used by God during this time. Ezekiel, Jeremiah, Habakkuk were all contemporaries during that time, trying to minister to God's people in different ways. And so here, God is using Daniel to, to give the Jews hope, to give the Jews a promise. Now, as we read Daniel, it's not in chronological order, uh, but it's given by Daniel to, given to Daniel. He records it. It tells us about some historical truths. It records some visions about the future of Israel. You could you know, there's two ways you could look at the structure of Daniel. Chapters 1 through 6 is more historical. Chapters 7 through 12, more visions and stuff. Another way to look at it is that the first chapter is written in Hebrew. And then from chapter 2 through chapter 7 is written in Aramaic. And then chapters 8 through 12 are written in Hebrew again. The Aramaic part deals with Babylon and the nations. The Hebrew part deals with uh, God's people uh, Israel. And, and so, you know, it's just uh, Daniel's written in several different ways. Let me quickly mention some major themes before we go to a time of prayer. And these are important as we, you know, look in, into this book. Um, there's two big ones. First, there is the theme of God's complete sovereignty over history and the nations. God is moving things along as he sees fit to accomplish his purposes on earth. Um, and and when, you, when you read about that, and even in, in the visions, okay, so here's all these different empires that are, that are going to be coming. All of those empires contribute in some way in preparing the world for the first coming of Christ, for the coming of the Messiah because that's where history was headed anyway. But God is using all these different empires in different ways to lead to that point. All these empires are just a blip in history, but it's all leading to Christ. God is using them like puppets, if you will, to accomplish his will. But this is a reminder to us that God is in control of everything. God can even use rebellious empires to put things in place. And, and so as we look at this crazy world and doing crazy things, that doesn't mean that God is out of control. Like It's like God's like, well, I don't know what I'm going to do with all this. What am I going to do with these crazy governments? He Every, he's got it. He's got that under control. So that's the first major theme that we see in Daniel. The other major theme is hope. There is hope for the persecuted. There is hope for the suffering under trials. 
you know, the, the Jews in captivity may have thought that God had completely forgotten about them. They thought maybe all was lost. They thought that, well, we'll, we'll never see our homeland again. I mean, Israel, Judah is gone forever. And that may, may have been the case. You know, there, but God does not abandon his people. God has a plan and a purpose for his people, even when they're under his disciplinary hand. He still loves them and cares for them. He wants to remind them of truths, the promises that he has given. And so we'll see in Daniel, like we see in many of the other prophets, there is the promise of restoration after the captivity. And, and you know, with, with the visions that God gives, he gives glimpses into where things are headed to point to the Messiah. Um, in fact, when we get to that point in, in the book of Daniel, I think that they may not have been able to figure it out, but obviously hindsight is twenty twenty. God actually gave the exact timeline when the Messiah would appear through these uh, visions, but they're given in order to exhort the people to greater faithfulness and trust in God, even in the midst of adverse circumstances. And I think, I mean, that's what the whole Bible should do for us, but I think that's what the book of Daniel will do for us. Even in adverse circumstances, knowing that God is in control, his timing is, is perfect. I mean, he, he does his thing in his way in his time. It may not be our way, our thing, our time, but he does it in his. And it, it should lead us to faithful living. It should lead us to, to holy living. And, and for those who are going through trials and, and tribulations and and persecutions and, and just various problems, Daniel is a comfort because God is in complete control. He's moving things according to his will and purpose, and he's bringing it to a goal. He's bringing it to an end. And that end is always going to be for the eternal good of his people. He is working things for the good of those who love him who are called according to his purpose. He's, not everything that he allows is good, in our sense of the word good. It's good in that it's moving God's purpose along. We, wouldn't, we might not say it's good, but it's good in that it's moving God's purpose along, but it's always working toward the ultimate good. And, and so I pray that we're encouraged uh, by that in the study of um, this interesting book. I hope in Daniel you find that, that peace and encouragement. God is in control of my life. God is in control of the world situation. God is in control of the government. You know, we think that people like Putin and all them just are out of control. And that, you know, here's, here's these crazy people, egom, egomaniacs, who think they can just do whatever they want to do and somehow God can't control that. Well, we're going to find a, a story in Daniel where Nebuchadnezzar, 
the most powerful king that probably had ever been up to that point. And he thought he was hot stuff. He thought that, you know what, here's this great empire that I built, and I'm just going to kind of sit here and waft in my greatness because I'm just so great. And what did God do to him? Made him crazier and loonier than anything else. He made him so crazy, he thought he was a beast. God very quickly humbled him. Now, strangely enough, Nebuchadnezzar somewhat learned his lesson. He gave praise, once he regained his sanity, he gave praise to the God on high. And so if God can control someone like Nebuchadnezzar, Putin, and any other, insert your whatever political person you like or don't like, whatever, they are more than in God's hands. And so I just pray that that gives you some encouragement. Let me... Thanks for listening to the podcast of Harvest Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at harvest-baptist.org or find us on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. You can also find info on our children's ministry on Facebook at Harvest Baptist Children's Ministry or on Instagram at kidsquest underscore HBC. Our student ministries on Facebook at HBC Vertical Student Ministry and on Instagram at VSM underscore HBC. We welcome you to join us on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. We are located at 8999 Waltrana Highway in Harvest, Alabama. Thanks for listening, and God bless.